So tonight we're going to cover this topic of God, his attributes, and his character. We're in chapter 3 of FOF, and um, there is no way we're going to cover everything in the next 45 minutes, and so I'm just going to defer a lot of the topic to what you guys had studied and hopefully done in your FOF workbooks. Because the reality is, right, we will never exhaust knowing the internal and infinite one. For as King David himself said, his greatness is unsearchable. But my simple aim for tonight is that wherever you are in your walk with God today, that you would leave here desiring and encouraged to know him more. Understanding that he has given us everything that we need to come to a saving knowledge of him and to grow in our relationship with him. And so to that end, we're going to take a slightly different approach. We will go over the exegesis at the end. But I want us to start by considering this question. Why should we know the Bible? Right? Why should we know the Bible? Why should you read his word? And... During our last FOF lesson, Kevin taught us on how we are to know his word. But why is it so important that we hear, that we read, that we study and memorize and meditate on his word? In studying his word, why should we make observations, come to the correct interpretation, and consider its application for our lives? And there are many good reasons that could be given. We want to know the Bible so that we can grow as a Christian, right? We want to mature in our faith. We want to gain wisdom for the day-to-day decisions that we have to make in life. We want to develop a biblical worldview as opposed to what's out there in the world. We want to know His Word so we can find peace and comfort and encouragement in the midst of trials. And we want to know his word so we can know his will for our lives. And all of these reasons we do find in Scripture, but if we had to ask, what is the ultimate purpose for which God has given us his word? It is this. If I can have, actually, my next... One more slide. Thanks. Right? What is his ultimate purpose in giving us his word? Right? God has given us his written word to reveal himself to us through the living word so that we might know him as he truly is, so that our lives would be transformed and our worship would be informed by the knowledge of his greatness and glory. I know that's a lot, so maybe a simpler way to put it is this. We are to know the Word of God so that we might know the God of the Word. That is the ultimate purpose for which God has given us His Word. And it ought to be the focus and desire of our hearts every time we come to His Word. Last week we had our prayer and discussion groups. And in our group we talked about how all of us need to be more disciplined in our Bible reading. Now, all of us know that we should 
be in God's word. So then why do we struggle? And I would suggest to you that one of the reasons we struggle with being in God's word is that we have a low or wrong view of scripture. We don't see his word in the way we should. It feels like a chore, like making our beds or cleaning up our rooms or taking out the trash because we fail to realize that the word of God is his appointed means of grace for us to know him and to grow in our relationship with him. But it's more than a lack of understanding. And it's a lack of desire. Right? And Pastor Mark addressed this in his sermon this past Sunday. But if I could give another analogy. right? My boys, when they're excited to go on our vacation to Hawaii, and we've gone several times, they will get up around somewhere between 4 and 5 a.m., to get ready to go to the airport, right? They would get on their own clothes, they would brush their teeth, they would get their stuff packed and ready to go, put on their shoes, right? They're excited to get on that airplane. Why? Well, ultimately, it's not about the transportation, but it's about the destination, right? Because it's what will take them to those white sandy beaches, the water slides, the shaved ice, the juicy mangoes and the sweet pineapples, right? right? If only they felt the same way about getting up for school in the morning, right? But how many of us approach the Word of God like we're going to Bakersfield? Right? <laughs> Would you get up early in the morning to get on that Greyhound bus? Right? Hopefully none of you guys are from there, but I, I wouldn't get on that Greyhound. Right? At the end of our day, you know, our struggle to be in his word is not about a lack of time or a lack of accountability. But it's about our appetite. and It's about our desire for him. We fill our lives with things that satisfy our flesh when none of those things can or were meant to satisfy our souls. Instead, when we look to God's word, we discover that there is no greater purpose for our life than to know God. That there is no greater need for our life than to know God. That there is no other means to knowing Him than through Christ and His Word. And that there is no greater response to knowing Him than to worship the One who created us. And so that's going to be our four points for this evening. And if I can have my next slide. <clears throat> there is no greater purpose pursuit, or priority for our life than to know God. There is no greater pursuit, purpose, or priority for our life than to know God. Right? This is the purpose for which we were created in the first place, to know our Creator and to live in fellowship with Him. In the Garden of Eden, we see that Adam and Eve were to have a relationship with God, to know Him as Creator, Provider, and Sustainer and to reflect his character and to exercise dominion over all that he had made. Now, obviously, the fall created a dilemma, but it did not change God's original design or desire for his people to know him. Through the rest of redemptive history, God sets out to restore true knowledge of him amongst his people 
How? By revealing who he is in his word. In the book of Exodus, he is the God who delivers and instructs. He reveals himself as one who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, promising to dwell with his people as he had brought them up out of the land of Egypt to be their God. In Leviticus, he is the Holy One of Israel who expects his people to keep his law, but also offers grace through sacrifices and atonement for sin. In Numbers, he is the God who expects faithfulness, And despite the Israelites' unfaithfulness, he is still the faithful one who remains true to his promises as he raises up a new generation to enter into the promised land. In Deuteronomy, which we've been going through in our scripture reading on Sunday mornings, he is the God who renews the covenant. In light of his past mercies and future blessings, God calls his people once more to be faithful to him and to the covenant that they had made at Sinai as they are about to enter into the promised land. In Joshua, he's the God who gives rest in the land. And as the sovereign and powerful God, he is the one who fights on behalf of his people to defeat and drive out the enemies so that they might dwell secure in the land. In Judges, he is the God who disciplines and delivers. And though Israel is disciplined for their idolatry, for their apostasy, and for forsaking him, God, out of his great mercy, delivers them from oppression through judges whom he raises up and empowers. In the book of Samuel, he is the God who protects and blesses. And despite the people's rejection of him in favor of a human king, God is still the sovereign one who will bring about the fulfillment of his covenant with David to establish the throne of his kingdom forever. As we skip a couple hundred years ahead to the time of the Babylonian exile, we see in the book of Esther that God is the one who protects the exiles. Now, one of the distinctives of this book, aside from having a lead female character, is that God is nowhere mentioned in this narrative. His name is glaringly absent from the book. To the extent that many scholars, including Martin Luther himself, have questioned its inclusion in the canon of Scripture. After all, how can a book of the Bible not mention the name of God? Well, when we understand the book of Esther to be God's revelation of himself, it becomes obvious that God is the main character of the story as he is with every other book in the Bible. Acting providentially for his people during the Babylonian exile, God is the sovereign one who works behind the scenes through the decisions of the human characters, Esther, Mordecai, Haman, King Ahasuerus, as well as through the historical events, circumstances, and decrees to preserve the Jewish people from annihilation, so that one day the Messiah would come from the Jews. What God wants his people to know about him through the book of Esther is that just as he works through miracles, sending supernatural plagues, dividing the Red Sea, he works providentially 
through the people and events in our lives to bring about his plan of salvation, even when we might not see it. In the wisdom books and writings, God is presented as the sovereign king who reigns with righteousness and justice, who reveals wisdom and gives meaning to our lives. When we get to the major and minor prophets, God is revealed as the righteous Lord and judge of all. And from the message of the prophets, we see that divine judgment is certain and imminent against the sins and idolatry of Israel and the nations. God's righteous anger has been kindled, and there is no stopping the train of his holy wrath. Yet judgment is not the final word. There is a hope for future salvation. And what is the purpose that God gives for executing judgment and promising salvation? It is so that, quote, they might know that I am the Lord. Jeremiah 9, verse 23 to 24, in the context of God's impending judgment on Israel, the Lord says, right, let the one who boasts Boast not in wisdom, not in might, and not in riches, but rather in what? That he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Several chapters later, still in the book of Jeremiah, God promises a new covenant with his people. And he declares, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And how will this new covenant be different or better than the old one? Verse 33, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. God has given us his word to reveal who he is, so that ultimately we might know him. This divine purpose continues and culminates in the beginning of the New Testament, with the revelation of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. Eternally God, Christ became flesh and entered our darkness in order to make known to us the Father, John 1.18. For according to Colossians 1, He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And after Christ's death and resurrection, this mission would be carried forth in the power of his spirit through the apostles and through his church until that day when every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, from the testimony of Scripture, we see that God's will and desire, beginning with Adam and Eve, to the people of Israel, extending to all the nations through the Great Commission, is that for all people, including you and I, to come to a true and saving knowledge of Him. Brothers and sisters, this is what we were created for, to know the God of the Word, 
so then the question for us is, is this what you and I are living for? There is no greater purpose, priority, or pursuit for our lives than to know God. Second, there is no greater need for our life, for the church, and for the world than to know God. There is no greater need for our life, for the church, and for the world to know God. Let's start with our own lives. In his classic book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer says this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. What is Tozer saying? What he's saying is that of all the influences that we can think of, our knowledge of God has the greatest impact upon our lives. Right? We tend to focus on the external circumstances, right? the environment in which we were raised, our genetics, our personalities. But whether we realize it or not, the reality is that each of us lives out of our knowledge, our beliefs, and our view of God. Each of us lives out of our knowledge, our belief, and view of God. And in this, we see that knowing God is not merely theological, but it is intensely practical. And let me give you a couple biblical examples, right? The book of Numbers, right? Chapters 13 through 14. You guys are familiar with this story. Twelve spies are sent out by Moses to the land of Canaan, which God had promised to give to the children of Israel. They come back and give their report and assessment of the situation. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, but the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. What explains the difference in response between Joshua and Caleb, the other ten spies, and the rest of the congregation who follow them? It's not their circumstances, but it's their knowledge and their faith in God. Right? The majority believe that the people are big and God is small. Joshua and Caleb would disagree that while the people are big, God is still bigger. If we go back to the garden in Genesis chapter 3, Satan tempts Adam and Eve by questioning God's goodness and trustworthiness, saying, did God actually say? Right? We compare their response to that of Christ in Matthew chapter 4, when he was accosted by Satan. Didn't God say? And what's revealed in each case is their true theology and knowledge of God. For Adam and Eve, it was found wanting. But for Christ, he held the Father in the highest esteem and trusted him to deliver him from the temptations as he had promised. From Adam and Eve and Joshua and Caleb, the Israelites and Christ in the wilderness, we see that each of them 
lives out of their knowledge, out of their beliefs, and out of their view of God. So what about us? Right, let's think about for a moment these problems and the struggles in our lives, in our marriages, our parenting, in our relationships at school, at church, in the workplace, our fears, our anxieties, our worries, our discontentments, they are all connected in some way to a distorted view of God. I remember at one of the North Creek Biblical Counseling Conferences that many of us attended, Nicholas Ellen asked the audience, right, how many of us would say that we believe in the absolute sovereignty of God? Right? I think all of us raised our hands. Now, how many of us would say that we believe that God is perfectly good, that he is loving and infinitely wise? Hopefully you guys agree. Then, why do we struggle to trust him in our marriages, with our kids, in every other aspect of our lives? Why do we complain when, for example, I found out this week that we had to pay an extra $500 on top of what we already paid for our kids' dental procedures? Can we really say we know God? Right, Dr. Klassen, Brad Klassen, he's, he was my hermeneutics professor. Right, he would say this, we don't need another marriage seminar. We don't need another book on purity and as helpful as they can be. What you and I desperately need for our lives is a truer, deeper knowledge of God. What about the world? Can I get my next slide? What is the greatest need for this world? Well, isn't it salvation that this world needs the most? Well, yes. But knowing God is the essence of salvation. Right? If they don't know God, they are not saved. And Romans 3, 10 through 18 clearly states that whether Jews or Gentiles, there is none who is righteous. No, not one. Why? For no one understands, knows, seeks after God. There is no knowledge or fear of God before their eyes. John 17.3, in contrast, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus defines eternal life in this way. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God. Right? Salvation is more than a ticket out of hell. It is having our fellowship with God restored through a saving knowledge of Him. And this is a far greater need than any social, political, economic, or health problem that this world will ever face. Can I get my next slide? So we talked about the knowledge of God being our greatest need. That it is also the greatest need of the world that we live in. But it is also the greatest need for the church. Right? Our worship depends on knowing God. 
Tozer, whom I quoted earlier, says this, Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his heart conceives God to be like. Listen to what he says. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of individual Christians, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Right? Do you guys hear what he is saying? Our view of God will determine how true and pure our worship is. There will be a palpable difference in the way a church worships between a church that upholds the greatness and glory of God and one that ascribes to a low or base view of Him. And biblically, we find support for this idea in John 4.23, where it says that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. On the other hand, false worshipers, also idolaters, will hold a false or unworthy view about God. But it's not only just our worship that is at stake by our knowledge of Him, but also our holiness depends on knowing God. Our holiness depends on knowing God, right? The character of God serves as the motivation for holy living. Leviticus 11.44, Yahweh to the nation of Israel says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. Why? For I am holy. Right? We might say that this is the summary statement of all the laws and the statutes and the ordinances that he gave to his covenant people. But this call to holiness was not limited to Israel back then, but is just as much for New Testament believers in the church today. 1 Peter 1, 14-15 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, right? A lack of knowledge of God. But as one who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Thus, our holiness is dependent on us beholding the Holy One of Israel. Not only our worship, not only our holiness, but our love for one another depends on knowing God. Turn with me to 1 John 4. 1 John chapter 4. And I'll read from verse 7 to 8. We read, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Right? We cannot love one another, let alone love God, unless we know the God 
who is love. So, as a point of application, as members of this church, what does our worship, our holiness, and our love reveal about our knowledge of God? I'm not talking about our knowledge about God, but rather our knowing Him. Do we truly fear the great I Am and hold Him to the highest esteem? Or do we merely profess with our lips that God is great, but our lives reveal otherwise? If knowing God is our greatest purpose and our greatest need, then thirdly, There is no other means to know God than through Christ and His Word. There is no other means to know God than through Christ and His Word. True knowledge of God can only be gained through divine revelation. As God reveals and discloses Himself to us. And we talk about general or natural revelation as a form of divine revelation. Where God through creation, reveals that He is God and He is the Creator. But there is a limitation, right, with general revelation. It is enough to condemn us. That's what we see in Romans chapter 1. But it's not sufficient to lead us to a true knowledge of God. And that's why He has to give us His Word, right? And, and the limitation for For us, knowing God is not with God. It's with us, right? It's it's because we are not only sinful, we're not only depraved, but the limitation is because we are finite, right? God is infinite. And there's this creature-creator distinction that prevents us from knowing God were not for Him disclosing Himself to us through His Word. And as I mentioned earlier, God is revealing himself to us through the pages of Scripture, through different human authors in the Old Testament, through the New Testament, and different genres in which it is written, the narratives, the prophecy, the poetry, all of this, right? God is doing, using to reveal who he is to us. And this is the reason we ought to study the whole counsel of God, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and not neglect parts of his word. And it's the reason that we, the elders, have recommended for our children to go through that gospel storybook Bible. Right? It's to present who God is from the narrative of Scripture and to show them that their greatest need is to know him as well. So true knowledge of God can only be gained through divine revelation, and specifically the scriptures. But secondly, true knowledge of God is found in Jesus Christ alone. Right? This is the reason that Christ came into this world, to show us who God is and how it is that we can have our fellowship with him restored. John 14, 9, Colossians 2, Hebrews 1, they all speak to the fact that Jesus Christ is God made flesh, and he is the radiance of the glory of God. And in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. 
right? All of the divine attributes are seen in the person of Christ. His holiness, His righteousness, His eternality, His love, His justice, His grace, and His mercy. They are all actively working in harmony in Christ. So here's another application for us. Do you spend time in God's word that you might know him? As you look upon Christ, particularly in the gospels, and see his divine perfection working actively in and in harmony with one another, do you count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing him? Philippians 3.8. So we saw that there is no greater, greater purpose in our life than to know Him. There is no greater need for our lives than to know Him. That there is no other means to know Him than through Christ and His Word. Fourth and finally, there is no greater response to knowing God than to worship the Holy One. There is no greater response to knowing God than to worship Him. And there are a number of different responses that people can have to God's revelation of Himself. We even see this even in the days of Christ. Not everyone who followed Jesus worshipped Him. Many stood in judgment of Him. Others associated with Him for personal benefit. And at the end of the day, it is all rooted in human pride and folly. And I remember as a freshman in college, we had to sign up for a humanities course. And one that particularly caught my attention was on the study of the Bible as a great literary work. And I was naive back then, but I would be sitting around a table of 15 other students with the professor as people gave their commentary on Genesis 1 through 3, tearing apart Scripture, applying all sorts of hermeneutic methods, and ultimately casting judgment on the character of God, saying that He is a cruel, unloving, and unjust dictator. Right? This is a clear illustration of 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the natural man does not understand or accept the things of the Spirit. Right? And they're not able to understand because they are spiritually discerned. In Psalm 50, verse 21, God judges the wicked, saying, You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Numbers 23, 19, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Job, the book of Job, right? Job suffers tremendously, and he is righteous in that. But where he goes too far is in questioning God's justice and his goodness. And God, in chapter 38, has to confront and rebuke Job for his response he asks Job a series of rhetorical questions. You guys remember. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? 
Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? So on and so forth. Right? Essentially, God was saying, who are you, Job, to cast judgment upon me? And Job's response is appropriate. He says, I lay my hand on my mouth. Right? He's utterly silenced by God's rebuke. God has not left it up to us to decide who he is. God is not who we think he is, but rather who he says he is, as revealed to us in his word. And instead of entertaining thoughts about God that are unworthy of him, or bringing him down to the level of our finite understanding, we ought to recognize that God is God, and we are not. He is far above and beyond human comprehension, reason, or imagination. Yet, in condescending love, he has made himself known to us. Therefore, a true knowledge of God ought to humble us, transform us, and lead us to worship as we behold the one whose greatness is immeasurable. And ultimately, that's where Job, David, and all who are faithful, they land. And we see this in our exegesis passage, 1 Chronicles 29, and this is where we'll end, right? The immediate context of this passage is King David's final words and charge to his people and to his son Solomon, who is to succeed him as the king of Israel. If I can get my next slide. Right? David not only gives the plans, but also he provides the resources for Solomon to build the temple as God's dwelling place amongst them. And if you guys recall, prior to the temple, God had resided with the Israelites in the tabernacle since the days of the Exodus. And the people respond with joyful generosity as they give freely to the construction of the temple. Right? This is the occasion for this passage that we all studied. But what is it that compels them to give joyfully and generously? It's their knowledge. It's their vision. It's their belief about who God is. The one who is above all and over all. The one who possesses all things, majesty, power, glory. And thus, King David blesses, praises, and gives thanks to God, not man, for the people's overwhelming response to beholding the greatness of their God. All right, this is not about personal achievement. Right? Giving a large sum donation right? Like a th philanthropist might, right? This is not about the prosperity gospel, right? Giving for the reward of health and wealth, right? What we see is worship expressed in joyful giving as they encounter and experience the greatness of God in their lives. And the principle from this passage is timeless and instructive for us today, we see that joyful, generous giving to God is not a product of how much we make or the balance in our bank account. It's a reflection of who we know our God to be. Those who have been captivated by God's beauty, His greatness and His perfections, have always given generously and joyfully 
out of heartfelt worship. The opposite is true for those who have a low or base view of God. But if I can take this one step further, right? If worship is more than our financial giving, but about the entirety of our lives being devoted and presented to God as a living sacrifice, then how does does your entertainment choice reveal about your knowledge of God? How does our evangelism reveal about our knowledge of God? How does how we serve in church reveal our knowledge of God? How does how we deal with conflict in relationships reveal our knowledge of God? How does our attitude at work reveal our knowledge about God? What does your life reveal about your knowledge of God? In summary, if I can get my last slide. Knowing God is our greatest purpose. It is our greatest need. But it's also our greatest good. And God has made it possible through his revealed word and through the life, through the death, and through the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, for us to know him. So that we who were once ignorant, foolish, and lost might behold the goodness and greatness of the one to whom all praise, blessing, and thanksgiving is due. That is the gospel. Why don't we close in a word of prayer? I'm just going to read Romans 11 and 33 through 36 as we close. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments and how inscrutable are your ways. For who has known your mind, O Lord? Who, who has been your counselor? Or who has given a gift to you that he might be repaid? For from you and through you and to you are all things. To you be the glory forever. Amen.